Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Today, my co-host, Kizzy Joseph, and I are talking with L. Michael Gibson. Gibson describes himself as a street kid made good. Originally from Chicago, As a youth, he lived briefly in Germany, where he excelled as an honor student. After returning to the United States when he was 16, Gibson came out to his family and was subsequently kicked out of his home. Situationally homeless but resourceful, the trajectory of his life changed dramatically following a chance meeting with two dynamic black doctoral candidates in Chicago who saw Gibson's potential and took him under their wing. The rest, Kizzy, as they say, is history. Al Michael Gibson is clearly a master of all trades. With his warm, humorous storytelling, you're in for a ride as we follow Michael's colorful journey from a young adult shaped by two life-changing mentors to becoming a life-changing mentor himself. That's right, Kizzy. Whether in D.C., Atlanta, California, Cleveland, or Detroit, in each city where he's landed, this founder of the Black Bear Brotherhood has definitely left his mark. Michael, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm making it and surviving during this pandemic. How are you? Oh, I know. I mean, that's about it for me. So I'm looking at it, and in part, I sort of knew you were from Chicago, Mm-hmm. But then I forgot. <laughs> you know, and then I forgot. Mm-hmm. And then I was reading so that's right. He was from Chicago. And, you know, you lived in Chicago, you lived in Germany, you went back to Chicago. There uh, I've lived in six cities. I know, wow. I know. Wow. I mean it, it seems yeah. like, you know, but there are a lot of great people who have done that pipeline between Detroit and Chicago. And um one of the things that I, I noticed that, you know, like you went to Germany, you came back to Chicago, but you talked about, um, and, you know, I was reading your Ubuntu biography, that you talked about how a turning point in your life was when you met two dynamic black doctoral candidates who saw potential in you. What did they say to you? Because you were doing another thing that, that was sort of cool, which I've heard kids from the Ruth Ellis Center say that they were situationally homeless but resourceful. And, you know, when they talk about we're not homeless, you know, like I couch surf and all like that. But here you were, this young person. What did they say to you that made a turning point in your life? 
I mean, it wasn't any particular statement or quote. Um, so I was 18 when I met them. I was working for a gelato shop <laughs> um, in uh-huh. Chicago uh, and also hustling on the side because at the time um, I was making just above minimum wage, and I think minimum wage might have been like $5.45 or something like that at the time, and I think I might have been making like $5.75 an hour. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, it was a long time ago uh, for some of your listeners who can't imagine that as the minimum wage. But um, And uh, they were customers. So, you know, I'm meeting these black gay men coming to this gelato, this gelato slash coffee shop pretty regularly. And, um, and one was flirting with me, and I wasn't interested in him, and the other I was interested in and was flirting with him. <laughs> and, um, you know, they had invited me to a picnic that they were having and there's actually a picture of me in this all green cross color outfit <laughs> uh, in the in the, in the early nineties um, going to the picnic. And that day, you know, we always kind of chatted and you know talked about our interests and things we were doing and involved in. And um, you know, and then kind of fast forward, you know, I, I made my play for the one that I liked. He was like. I think you're cute, but I'm not interested in you like that. You know, plus he's 10 years mm-hmm. older than me, so I'm probably, he was probably like, this is a kid. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and and at the time, I was, I'm always grateful for the kind of kid I was because, you know, my ego and um, kind of attitude around rejection was, was pretty um, grown up. I mean, I was kind of like, oh, cool, well, you know, if you don't see me like that, it's no problem. We could just be you know, besties, we just be friends, <laughs> right? Like, uh-huh. like uh-huh. I've just pivoted immediately. And I'm grateful that I pivoted because, um, you know, a lot of times when people get rejected, you're like, oh, I don't want to talk to that person ever again. Um, but this, was a, this guy was, like, super interesting. He was super, you know, educated. He was going to Northwestern, working on his Ph.D. And, um, you know, he works for the feds today. And so, you know, and the other guy was his best friend, and he was, um, on Harvard, and he was, like, on loan to Northwestern while he was working on his doctoral thesis. And so, you know, these were two black gay men who are working on their PhD. I'm coming from the hood. I had never met anybody like these guys. Um, I was always a well, well-read kid, always um, very interested in arts and culture. They introduced me to politics. Um, and so it was you know, they kind of just took me under their wing. It was over time. It took, um, you know, I think part of it was they heard my story and they didn't judge it. You know, mm-hmm. um, they, you know, you know, at, when I went back and asked my, you know, my now best friend of over 25, 27 years now, uh, what was it about me? You know, because he'd met other, my other friends that I hang out, hung out with in my circle and, you know, they didn't mention them, you know, they mentioned me. And then, so I was like, well, what was it about me? And it's like, well, one, you were really smart and precocious. And he's like, and that, that was part of it. And, he said, and then the other part of it was just really angry that a, a kid with your kind of potential had been left to the streets, you know, for only for the sole purpose of just because he was gay. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that they were really, you know, so that bothered them. And, and that was part of what took me under their wing. Regardless, I'm grateful that they did because um, by pouring into me and not being judgmental and, you know, not offering unsolicited advice, I always had to solicit their advice if I wanted it. 
which meant I didn't have to listen to what they had to say. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and, you know, and so, that, uh, you know, up there after they, I, I even lived with one of them for a little while um, before I left Chicago to move to D.C. when I was 19. And, um, and it was because of them that I, I went to D.C., you know, because one was working, had gone back um, to D.C., was take, had a kind of a contract with Congress, and was working with the you know congressional representatives and stuff while also still working on this PhD for Harvard, and um, and I was and I was originally going to go to Atlanta because that's what you did if you were from Chicago, if you were black and gay, you left Chicago, you moved to Atlanta, <laughs> and, um, uh-huh. and uh, I went to DC for Pride, and I was shocked. I had never seen that much black middle class wealth, that much black education um that much black upward mobility and you know it's so different from the south side neighborhood that i had grown up in and knew um and so i was like well you know i was the kind of person who always did just above whatever the bar was Uh and i knew that in dc the bar would always be unattainable like so i would always be striving to be better and do better because you know the bar in dc is like multimillionaires <laughs> working in the Senate or something, you know, like it's, they're, they're, the sky's the limit, or at least it was back then for black folks um, when it was Chocolate City. So, um, yeah, so I moved to Chicago. I moved to D.C., and, and that began my career and work in community organizing and, um, and changed the course of my life. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that that you're right about D.C. It is totally different. It's very different even from um, when you go to Atlanta. You know, did you go, what What really, were you daunted by seeing that? You know, like you knew that the bar was going to be high and that you, it would mean that you're going to really have to work hard, hustle hard to stay there and to be a part of that and to move in those, those lanes. Circles. Mm-hmm. But, but were you drawn by that challenge did you ever have a moment like what what have i done no it was it was never a what have i done i, I mean and i think you know I, I you know i came with some privileges you uh-huh. know i was mm-hmm. uh at that time i was you know folks look at me now i look like somebody's deacon uncle um but back then <laughs> i had uh, <laughs> You know, I was like a 30 in a way. I was a gym rat. Uh, you know, um, I was well-spoken and well-read. You know, I always carried a book around with me because people often thought I wasn't going to be smart because, you know, I looked a certain way. Um, and so that was kind of like my way of disarming them with that, um, particularly if they knew you were from the hood in the south side of Chicago. And so, um so, no, I just, you know, I was very much like Ariel and Little Mermaid. I just wanted to be part of their world. Like, <laughs> like they, uh-huh. these, were, these were black folks who were making things happen. You know, they weren't just talking about it. They were doing whatever they needed to do to get it. And everybody kind of had a side hustle. Like, everybody had, like, their regular career, and their regular career was already impressive enough. And then they had, like, their side business. You know, I'm, I'm working on a coffee shop or I'm working on a book or I'm working on a, you know, a T-shirt business. You know, I sell water on the weekends. You know, like the, everybody was always uh-huh. involved in something else. And I was so inspiring and so encouraging. It motivated me. Uh, it mm-hmm. made me just want to be better. 
Um, I mean, and, and don't get me wrong. I mean, Atlanta has a lot of those qualities, but you kind of have to, you know, be in one of those circles for that in Atlanta. Atlanta's so vast and so sprawled out that, um, you know, whereas D.C., you know, people think of D.C. and they think, oh, it's such a huge city. But it's like, no, D.C. is 64 square miles, 64 to 69 square miles. Uh-huh. It's, uh-huh. A, it's, it's really a town. And if you get in with the right folks early on, you know, your path kind of lays itself out for you. Um, mm. I, I always tell people, like, I only looked for a job in a newspaper my first two weeks in D.C. Once I got to know certain folk. And, you know, people saw I was a hustling young man. You know, I, I would say D.C. was one in the 90s. And I don't know what it's like now. But as a young, aspiring black man, it was the only place I could take for granted the same kind of things a white guy my age and in my position could take, assume. Like, I could assume that if I worked hard and people saw me, that I could advance. Um and that people would open doors for me. And I was, I mean, because at the time, D.C. was run by black people. And that was real. Like, people saw me as a young, entrepreneurial, hustling kid, and they wanted to be part of that success. They wanted to help me. Um, So, you know, a lot of people say these things about, like, what black people don't do and how black people don't help each other. And, you know, that's not my story. I don't know anything about that. (laughs) Like, my story is the exact opposite. I am here because elder black people saw me, saw myself in them, and and opened doors and made it possible for me to thrive. I mean, that, that is absolutely the truth of my success. I would not have gotten here, would not be here at all if it wasn't for people making away from me. You know, after those two mm-hmm. first two weeks, every job I had after it was because I was referred. Every job I had was somebody who knew somebody. I mean, and that's kind of how DC works anyway. I always feel bad for people uh-huh. coming in from out of town. It's like you really kind of get get in. It's hard for people who don't because um, it really is like they'll post a job, but everybody will know that that job posting is just for the law, <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Like, you know, that they kind of already know who they want in or they have an idea. Um, so it can be hard if you can't break in, but if you do break in, you know, it's, it's, it's really incredible. Well, I know people who, and, and that is true. I know people who are in DC and it's sort of like, they said like there was one thing and they said, well, I don't even know why they posted it because they had already made up their mind. And then you'll talk to them later on, and they have gotten that job, gotten a different job, and it, they didn't go through all that. Someone said, well, you know, are you interested in this? And they have the job. You know, forget all about that process. So it is a lot about who you know and mm-hmm. what you're doing. And that people recognize people who are doing things. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're smart and, and a hustler – and people can and, I mean, part of it is also do if people trust you, right? Like, are you gonna, do you have a record of success? Are you going to embarrass them if they bring you on, you know, or are you going yeah. to make them look good because they brought you on? You know, all of those kind of factors matter. And I mean, and on the downside, I will say this about DC. It also is an incredibly superficial space. <laughs> like, uh-huh. you know, I always tell people the first three questions you'll be asked in D.C., one of them invariably will be is, you know, where did you go to school? 
um, in some instances, depending on the circle, where did you go to grad school? Um, and they'll also ask, you know, like, who do you work for? Or where do you work? And if those answers aren't good answers, people will walk away from you in the middle of a conversation. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, that's, mm-hmm. that's real. Like, um, I was lucky in that I was working for national nonprofits within my first, you know, maybe two years of being there. Um, mm-hmm. And even when I worked locally, it was for a couple of well-known and respected uh, local nonprofits. So I was able to get my foot in the door, you know. Um, and I was young, so people didn't expect me to have graduated college yet. They did expect me to attend. And so, you know, I would have to, like, you know, I'm, I'm a student at so-and-so and so-and-so. So that, um, that, so that, that helped a, a great deal. Um, but, yeah, I mean, people cared about what you dressed like. They cared about what shoes you wore. I mean, like, some of that is silly, and it has nothing to do with whether or not you're a good worker, but it is part of how the game is played there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Eric, since I saw you were in D.C., that's when, you know, it's like you found your niche. Like, you, I've known you always as being an advocate, as being involved with community and activism. And it seems like, you started to find yourself in that niche in D.C. Yeah, so I got, I was there maybe three months, and um, I had been invited to a community uh, conference, like a grassroots community conference for D.C., Black Gays and Lesbian Leadership Forum kind of thing. It was like a local organization. And, um, and I was very... I was like 19. <laughs> I'll never forget because several people who I met at that conference I, I'm friends with to this day, which is kind of crazy to me to think about now. Um, you know, I'm 45 now, so this is how long ago that was. Um, and the they had elections. They're like, you know, they were electing people to be on their board and serve in different roles. And somebody nominated me to be a membership co-chair. And I was like, what I, you know, I guess I had said things that you know people had paid attention to me, and they were like, "Yeah, we need some young blood on here." And I, I literally was the youngest person on their, on their board, uh-huh. um, and, and and they and it was and it'll be my first gig and uh, in community organizing, and they mentored me and they worked with me, and and that was kind of my foray into that world. And you know, I'm I'm so grateful. The time I came in, I got to meet you know. Essex Hemphill before he died. I got to meet Stephen Corbin before he died. I got to host the first black gay literary event at Howard University. Um, it was one of my first organizing gigs. Uh, I got to meet Elon Harris through that. You know, so like, and I'm like this young person. So, um, and because of those early successes and, you know, kind of high profile successes for DC, I got like an award for youth activist of the year that year. Um, it kind of just put me on the path. And so, you know, I went from local organizing to working for nationals. I worked for uh, HRC for a summer. Uh, That was an interesting experience to work for a majority organization with lots of resources. Uh, It it, it was an educational experience. It wasn't one Uh I wanted to repeat and would not repeat for a while, but (laughs) Um, then I went on to work for youth um, advocates for youth doing work on women's issues, which I'm grateful for because it kind of grounded me in feminism and womanism mm-hmm. as theories. Um, and, you know, a lot of the work I was working on was reproductive 
health and reproductive justice for young women of color and also LGBTQ youth of color, um, which led me to my first client. Um, and it's kind of the precursor to Faithwalk LLC. My business was LMG Consulting um, because when I left Advocates, some of the people who were working with me as a trainer and technical assistant um, consultant wanted me to still work with them. And I was like, well, the, you know, the resources that are paying for that are coming from advocates and I'm leaving advocates. And they were like, well, we still want to work with you. So they just paid me directly um, Mm -hmm. when I left. And that was like my first contracts. And then I transitioned over to National Youth Advocacy Coalition, which was the national gay youth organization at the time and was working on racial economic justice issues for them under a Ford Foundation grant. You know, that took me all over the country showed me youth programs all over the country and um and what what made them work what made them didn't work how you know how to engage young people um in ways that respects their autonomy and respect their creativity but also still um helps to shape and foster uh what it is you want to bring out of them uh and i ended up taking that work when i went back locally and um, moved to cleveland and the client that i had first had um you know, I, I went up to Cleveland and worked with them and got my, you know, my first contracts there. And within a year, I was co-founding with Tracy Jones uh, Beyond Identities Community Center, which was the first LGBTQ youth of color drop-in center in the state of Ohio. And uh, mm-hmm. did that work for five years. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's been oh, an interesting ride. Uh, but that wasn't what I thought I was going to do professionally. It was kind of what I fell into. It matched my politics. It aligned with my passions. But I really thought I was going to be in the creative arts and, you know, continue to go to school um, to study that. My ex, my undergraduate is a BFA in creative writing. Um, you know, and I purposely chose to get degrees, both my master's and my undergrad. I chose to get in things that weren't related to the work I was involved in so that I could always still have a, a toehold and other things that I was interested in and passionate about. You know, I mm. talked to, and, and you might have something, and I guess, and, and maybe Kizzy can ask help. You know, you talked about how you, when you worked with this, um, or skip, just that quick, Advocates for Youth, and you were working mm-hmm. and you focused on young women of color. I talked to Tim M. West, who, you know, we both know, and he yeah. talked about how important learning about feminism was to him and how some of his mentors had been feminists. How did that impact you? How did it yes. change the way you looked at things? Well, you know, I came up with very strong black women. Um, while I, I was also initially raised and somewhat formed in the evangelical Christian tradition as a kid, um, it would be a tradition that I would get to question and interrogate and criticize and critique pretty harshly after I was dealing with my own sexuality issues. Um, and the treatment of women was one that I never could quite square myself with. You know, my mom, um, in the first church that I was raised in, you know, she wasn't allowed to wear pants. She wasn't allowed to wear makeup. Um, but she was smarter than her first husband. And I, and even as a child, I knew that. <laughs> like, and 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 so, the idea that you know the head of the household had to be this man who wasn't as smart as she was bothered me. 
Um, and I didn't have language for that then. I just, you know, would recognize it. And the women in my family were the drivers of our family. Like, they were the people who made things happen. I didn't really see that as much with the men in my family. Um, they, you know, two of, two of them went in the military and had very successful careers. And, you know, one is now working as a union leader. And um, he's had a successful career in sea metal work and such. Uh, my dad was in the military. Um, he's had not as successful a career um, since he's gotten out. Um, but, you know, I just saw women as being equal, you know, from uh, as a young kid on. So this idea that women were not, um, you know, I just, it, it never could, I could never reconcile that. And, and even when I left Christianity for a while to, you know, research and interrogate other religions, other faith walks, you know, part of what kept me from becoming a Muslim, you know, was reading about the treatment of women. And when I, I remember when I was reading the Quran and they was like, if your wife disobeys, be her. And I remember literally like, I was like 20 and I closed the book and put it away and I never picked it up again. <laughs> like, I just couldn't. Mm-hmm. You know, there's certain things, you know, I was just like, um, could not square. Um, so I think that there's always been, I, I don't, I can't remember a time I didn't believe women were equal. I think that, um, Anyone who's a part of an oppressed community, I'm always surprised, actually. I won't say anyone. I'm always surprised when people who have experienced oppression due to traits that they have no control over oppress other people around traits that they have no control over. Like, I, I, I don't understand how that works logically. You know, I don't understand it when it's gays against trans folk. I don't understand it when it's um, black people against other minority groups. Uh, and I definitely don't understand anyone that's queer folk around women. Um, but, it, you know, for me, it just felt like a natural alliance. And then in my personal life, um, after those two brothers, you know, who were still well in my life, you know, for the, ever since, um, the bosses I had uh, at Advocates for Youth and at National Youth Advocacy Coalition and my first client, my first major client outside of the uh, first client that brought me to Cleveland were all black women. And they all, each and every one of them mentored me. Charlene Leach mentored me. Uh, Kayla Jackson mentored me. Uh, you know, Jacqueline Fleming Hampton mentored me. Uh, Tracy Jones has been the last black woman to mentor me. And, you know, we're friends to this day. Like I'm a manager and I learned how to be a manager from her. So, what I found in each of those relationships was that, you know, because other people seemed like they had problems with some of those women, and I never did. And part of it was that I believed them, I listened to them, I respected their authority, I respected that they had a knowledge base I didn't have. And as a result of me just doing something as basic as that, they poured into me. They poured into me their mm-hmm. knowledge. They, they looked out for me. They protected me. Um, and they treated me well. You know, and so, you know, similarly, I, there have been male friendships that I've ended because, you know, they were anti-woman in their languaging and in their thoughts about black women. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and I just couldn't square it with my experience. You know, I'm like, I know black women to be some of the strongest, most successful, most accomplished, most protective. They're the reason why we have what we've had, the reason we had the civil rights movement, or the reason we had 
um, a faith movement um, that men got to be the face of, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so working on uh, reproductive health and reproductive justice issues, that just was, that was a no-brainer. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, women should have, you know, control over their bodies, period, you know, full stop. Mm-hmm. Like, I, that wasn't, mm-hmm. I, was, I, was, I was glad to be part of the work. Mm-hmm. I think it's so important that you highlighted that exact um, issue, Michael, that, you know, there is this assumption that people within the black LGBTQ community are all, you know, basically woke. But, you know, you reminded us that, you know, there are still oppressive ideologies that still, like, exist within that community, like um, transphobia, uh, misogyny. So I think that was a really... Um, great point just to, you know, remind ourselves, like, not every black queer person is an Audrey Lord. <laughs> um, but along the lines of mentorship, can you speak more to the importance of um, that kind of generational alliance, um, particularly among black um, LGBTQ youth? Yeah, so, you know, because I had been lifted up by these two black gay men, um, Dr. Timothy Harrison and Dr. Gerard Ferguson. Um, May Gerard rest in peace, where Gerard isn't with us anymore. Um, you know, at, at the time I knew I always wanted to do what had been done for me. Um, but, you know, I also knew I was a bit of a mess. <laughs> you know, and to be a, a good mentor, you actually have to walk the walk and talk. Um, so, you know, while I was doing a lot of very laudable things and I got lots of, you know, a lot, lot of attaboys for being involved in the kind of work I was involved in, you know, part of me always was a little bit like, I don't know if it's, I deserve an attaboy. I do get a paycheck for this stuff. <laughs> like, it's not like I do it for free. Um but, uh, you know, in my personal life, you know, I was still partying really hard. I was still, you know, going to circle parties and drinking too heavy and, and sleeping around a lot. You know, I was in my 20s and the 90s. You know, so um, I didn't feel like I was in a position to effectively mentor anybody. Um, mm-hmm. And when I left to go to from D.C. to Cleveland and was doing work with young people directly, that was the first time that I went from being somebody who taught people who worked with youth to work with youth, you know, and and it was very much theoretical. Like I had been very studied in youth development, adolescent youth development, youth and adult working partnerships and all of that. But it was all theory. Like I was training people on what they should do based on best practices or based on what the studies were saying. I wasn't, it wasn't from a lived experience. Um, And so when I got the opportunity to work with kids directly, I got to see how much of that worked and how much of that didn't work, <laughs> how much of that was for other people's kids and not our kids. Um, and, uh, but it was, I was also at an age, I was 28, I think was when um, Big started. Uh, and I was then in a position to be different, right? Like I was, I was ready to not be in a club every weekend. I was ready to, uh, clean up my act, so to speak. And um, because in Cleveland, the black gay community was so incredibly small 
you know, you sneeze. The next day, a kid was like, I saw you sneeze, Mr. Gibson, on the corner of <laughs> Carnegie. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, you know, like that. I remember, I never forget. I had a date with a guy, and we held hands for three blocks, literally for three blocks on that date. Um, and you know, it was just as a dare. He had dared me to hold his hand walking down the street because uh, we weren't in the uh, best part of Cleveland at the time. So. And the next day, a kid I work with was like, Mr. Gibson, I saw you holding hands with the trade. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, but it lets you know you can't ever be caught flipping. You know, mm. that there's somebody always paying attention. And, um, and so if not for yourself, for them, you better represent well. So what it is you would want them to represent. So I, I, that was – I had gotten prepared, and, you know, and I, I took him personally. You know, I ran a center, so a lot of kids under my care. You know, that center is still alive, still working with kids. Um, it, during my tenure, I think we worked with some 3,000 kids over the course of the five years I was there. Um, but I personally took in five boys that I mentored directly um, who are now very grown men who – I'm like a parent. You don't call me enough. What's going on? I got to call you in order to find out what's going on in your life. But, uh, you know, back then they were like 19 and 20 and 21. And, um, and I worked with them and helped to pour into them the same way as pouring into me. And I felt like I owed it. So, um, and I'm grateful because they, in the years since, have given me as much as I gave them in return. Um, so I think it's important. I, I mean, I do think if you feel like you can do it, if you think you can, um, you know, it pour into another young person's life, uh, you know, I mean, it's a lot of people, a lot of black gay folks do it with family. Um, but if you can do it with another LGBTQ kid, they need it. Um, those kids are considered the worst by everybody, you know, in youth development work, in youth development circles. They're considered the hardest to work with, you know, outside of maybe kids who have juvenile justice issues. You know, um, and that the police view them as the worst, you know, and treat them the worst. Um, so, you know, like at every turn from their church to some of their family life, they are getting the business. And so to have another adult that looks like them, has shared experience with them, take, take the time to pay attention and work with them. And it's, it's hard work. You know, they're still kids. They still are developing brains. They still have impulse control issues. They're still going to make bad decisions. <laughs> they're still going to do all the things you did as a teenager and as a young adult, you know. Um, and that requires a certain amount of grace and patience on your part, but it's so rewarding and it's so worth it. And, you know, I encourage anybody listening, if you can do it, to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to kick that off. Oh, go ahead, Kitty. Go ahead. No, um, just going to ask what kind of programming that um, Beyond Identities Community Center did during your time there. Oh, wow. <laughs> Those were the halcyon days if you hear my kids talk about it. You know, that was like, because uh, we had a half a million, at our peak, we had a half a million dollars a year to play with. Um, you know, and I, I, their mm-hmm. funding is nowhere near that today, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, we man, we had creative arts programming. So um, we spent a year working on a musical 
that the kids wrote, co-wrote with me and worked with me. And uh, one of my kids who was a composer going to University of Miami at the time, worked with them on. Um, We did billboard campaigns, uh, kiosk campaigns on HIV prevention, on, um, you know, mismaking smart choices. Uh, You know, we had a drop-in center that offered workshops and life skills development you know, every week in order to fall out. Of, you know, a lot of our kids were in houses and involved and, and part of that balls world. So, you know, in order to make sure that they could have that play time to do that, they had to go to a workshop. <laughs> so you, if you didn't go to a workshop, you couldn't, you couldn't fall out, couldn't play. So um, that we had uh, all of that, you know, um, and one of the kids, you know, some of the kids developed things on their own for us. So, like, one of the kids got, um, at the time of Borders Books, to donate a whole library to us, including the shelves for the books, you know. Um, you know, so it was, just, it was really good. We, you know, we had workforce development. We trained, uh, I think, the first, probably between the first two cohorts, 30 folks to become um, entry-level public health workers, community health workers. And at least four of those people we trained are still in that work today as very, very grown adults with kids of their own now. Um, so, yeah, like it was, it was really incredible work. I was, I was, I'm, I'm grateful to have been a part of it. You know, for a long time, I said it was the work I was most proud of in my life, and I was, you know, hard pressed to find something that was going to need it or eclipse it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, now we're going to take our first break. And uh, if you're just joining us, we're talking with L. Michael Gibson, and we will be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and we're talking with L. Michael Gibson. Okay, I'm just going to ask you straight up, what brought you to Detroit? (laughs) (laughs) Well, so, you know, I talked about D.C. in the 90s and when it was Chocolate Mm -hmm. City, um, and I lived through the gentrification of D.C., and it was was, uh, fairly wrapped up about 10 years but you got to watch it happen in real time. And, you know, you, they don't call it urban renewal anymore, but, you know, you, when you read books in the six, about the 60s and 70s and urban renewal, you realize, oh, this is what is happening now. We call it gentrification, uh-huh. but back then we call it urban renewal. Um, and so I was too young, and I didn't make enough money to take advantage of that when it was going on. But you're aware that it was going on. Um, and I also love love 
the unapologetic blackness of the space. You know, people felt good about being black. People did not have these anti-black narratives. You know, the people that they knew who were successful were black. We've been really hardworking were black. Um, and so if you're 19 and very impressionable and you come into a space like that, it forms how you think about yourself and makes you walk a little bit more upright. Um, and it also kind of arms you against anti-black narratives that, you know, we now kind of have all around us all the time now. And, um, and so it kind of fortifies you. And when I left D.C. the first time, I went to California, and California didn't have it, even in Oakland. You know, which, you know, the birthplace of the Black Panther Party wasn't, the, wasn't on no anti-black <laughs> like, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. fortification uh-huh. Um It was very much like every black person for themselves kind of a thing. Um, and that was shocking to me, you know, coming out of a yeah. place where uh, that wasn't the norm that I had experienced in D.C. for so many years. You know, I lasted only like a year in California, and I came back to D.C. And, and, you know, even in just a year, it had changed. You know, the rent that I had paid for, like, my three-bedroom apartment um, in, uh, in that, right next to Columbia Heights, up there was uh, George Avenue Petworth area about a block from Columbia Heights, um, was like, had jumped up like $500 in that one mm. year. And, um, mm. you know, when I got back and back then, when I left again, what was it, you know, two years later, um, to go back home to Chicago, um, my mom had been sick, and um, she would eventually transition. Um, but I went back to Chicago so I could be nearer to her. She lives in Minneapolis, but, you know, flying back and forth from D.C. whenever there was a problem was, a, was really incredibly challenging. And I wasn't – she didn't want me to move to Minnesota, and I wasn't prepared to live in Minnesota. So, <laughs> like, the compromise, the compromise was Chicago, which, I mean, I could jump on the bus and be, uh, be home or jump on a quick flight and be home in, you know, less time um, and cheaply so I could be there for her if she needed me for something. Um, but even Chicago, when I got back, I, I was reminded of par- partially why I left. You know, uh, you know, I, I had a conversation with an elder who um, was very close to me, and I remember, you know, she had been working at the same place for 40 years. And I was like, did you ever dream of, you know, doing something else with your life? Or, you know, had you satisfied with, you know, getting this gig and kind of staying there? And she was like, I, you know, I got it. I was 18. I just got to graduate high school and I got a good job. And so I was fine. I had a good job and I, you know, worked my job. And, and it was kind of like she hadn't even dreamed about the possibility of anything else for herself. And I remember that being like mm-hmm. I worked at a, a hotel. That I, I, was, <laughs> I was the first new hire in the restaurant's waiting staff because the the person had died and everybody mm. else in the wedding staff had been there for 20 years. You know, like nobody left. When I, I remember when I left, I worked at Marshall Fields for a while and uh, which they, I don't even think Marshall Fields is a thing anymore. I think it's now Macy's, but back in the day, it was mm-hmm. Marshall Fields, um, water tower. And there were people working at the restaurant that I had left 10 years ago and they were still there. And it was kind of like, you know, there's no shade to any of them and their decisions. But Chicago made black people who grew up poor or working class feel like that was the best they could hope for for themselves. And they should better be grateful mm-hmm. for it. And I was really disheartened by that attitude that we should be grateful to be second class citizens, grateful for whatever scraps we got. 
and um, and I, you know, I, I knew I wasn't going to last staying there. Uh, now I'm sure there are people from Chicago who have a different narrative, but Chicago is also a place that is highly segregated by economics as much as by race. So mm-hmm. if you grew up black and middle class in Chicago, that's your niche, right? You don't ever really connect with or see or <laughs> interact with anybody else. But if you grew up poor in Chicago, it's incredibly difficult to be upwardly mobile and get out of that unless you leave. Um, mm. And so Detroit, you know, I have people here, and their attitude reminded me of D.C. Now, it was interesting because, like, Detroit is a place that financially was extremely middle class. Black people here had, you know, one of my friends likes to say Detroit was the birth of the black middle class. I think some black people in D.C. and Philly might argue with him on that. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, but, you know, but I understand why he felt that way because the Detroit he grew up in in the 60s, black folks had money, you know, black people had big houses, they had votes, <laughs> had, uh-huh. you know, but culturally – they were just like the folks from Chicago for me. Like, they were very, you know, they were working class. They were down to earth, no heirs. They're not going to ask you what college you went to. They're going to ask you what high school you went to, and you better say you went to Cass. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know, it was very, like, thought of the earth. You know, they meet you. They're like, hey, baby, come get some of this food over here. You know, like, it's very... You know, I'll, you know I'll, I'll call it up south, one of my friends hate when I say that, but it's, it's that kind of down-home country feel. But people were, have been used to having, like people have been used and grew up having resources. Um, and I, I think people don't always know that narrative about Detroit because, you know, they've seen the Detroit that's got the ruined porn and, you know, the, the areas that are burnt out and all of that. But for black people who grew up here under Coleman Young, and had got to have multi-generational experiences of black wealth. You know, I was dating a guy here in 2004 with, you know, at the time his base salary was like 75000 and with overtime he was making 150 off of a high school diploma. You know, <laughs> like, you know, like that's, that's what you could do here in Detroit. And so that gave black people here a sense of entitlement, you know, and it made them very proud to be black. They, too, saw black success. I mean, if you think about how many people have left Detroit and been successful in the arts and in business, Detroit forms strong black minds and strong black self-ideation. And I love that about here. You know, so when other people saw the ruin, I saw the potential. I was like, the, the bones are here. The people here are amazing. You know, all it needs is economic opportunity. And... I also saw the plants, you know, like one of the things I would tell people here who grew up here is like, yo, the money's coming. White folks got plans for this place. It's up to y'all to not hand over all the keys to all the kingdoms while you, you know, while it's happening. Cause I'd seen that happen in DC, you know, DC when I left, I think it's something like 42% black now. When I got to DC in 1994, um, it was 70% black. You know, wow. and so, um, and the white population in Detroit is doubled. It's something like fifteen uh-huh. percent, and you know, five years ago it was something like six percent. You know, so, it's funny what you what you were saying because you know I'm sitting here thinking about that, and you know, nobody from Detroit. When I'm going around, 
I've never had someone say, oh, well, why did you go on to college? And I've been in other cities and met people who are from Detroit, and if you say, oh, I'm from Detroit, the first thing they say is, where did you go to high school? <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. and, and I'm just like, you know, he's right. And there, and if there was, mm-hmm. you know, and yes, I did go to Cass. <laughs> but there's but there like, like, I've been in Chicago. I've been in L.A. I've been in D.C. Where you went to D, you know, you're from Detroit. Oh, where'd you go to high school? And it's suddenly like, okay, well then, of course you know everybody. You know, I'm like, oh no, mm-hmm. you know, it was a big school. You know, but uh, right. but it's funny. I never thought about that until you just said it. How true that is. Yeah, Detroit doesn't have a lot of airs about itself. I mean, and, and, and people here grew up with incredible security for a really long time. I think it's why they did not know how to pivot. You know, so many people couldn't pivot. You know, they didn't have the education to pivot when the factories and, and the plants started changing the game on them. You know, they have been two and three generations. You know, we're a Ford family. We're a Chevy family. We're, you know, GM family. Um and, you know, and why would, you know, like if your dad or your uncle and your cousins were all making near six figures, driving great cars, living in nice houses, putting a widget in a widget, <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like you would go and go learn how to put a widget in a widget, you know, um, if, if the game, because America told everybody the game was to make money and to be able to own a piece of the pie. So, um, and then it shifted. I mean, I think that that's the difference. D.C., People develop, you know, a middle-class attitude and everything based on education. Um, here they, they develop that kind of attitude based on wealth. Um, but, you, and, but, you know, isn't that part of the whole story, uh, part of, a big part of the story of the whole northern migration? Like, we came up here, we got into the plant, and then, like you said, sometimes if you were in there, you didn't even have to finish, if a father or your father or somebody was in there, they got you in, whether you finished high school or not. And so if you finished high school, you know, but there was that plant, and the plants transferred into wealth because you were able to have cars, you were able to have doing this. And I was talking with Stephen Forward once, who used to work at the Schomburg, and Stephen was mm-hmm. saying that he does archiving, and he said one of the things that he had found as he would, you know, work with organizations, particularly in the South, where someone had migrated to Detroit, and they would send back pictures, and the pictures mm-hmm. were pictures of wealth. Here we were, yeah. you know, somebody dressed up, standing by a car, they had a house, which made others want to come to Detroit because that was it. You know, that was a really good life. But oh, then as people expanded further, they thought of other things. But for Detroit, you could have this really amazing life with a high school education. Yeah, I mean, and that's true for a lot of the Rust Belt, if you were white. I think in Detroit was unique in that you could have that life and be black, right? Mm-hmm. And But I also think the, the downside of that is when manufacturing moved on or shifted and globalization hit, people who had only known how to do a, put a widget in a widget and make a lot of money, you know, they weren't able to, like, what, what were they supposed to do? Who was going to pay them that kind of money, you know, with their skill set? And 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 that that's that's the sad part of what happened to Detroit. Um, they didn't prepare the workforce for the shift, mm-hmm. you know. And and even now, like I know a lot of people who still work for the plant, they don't make the kind of money that their parents or grandparents made. 
but they make decent money, and you know, you still you still get a good check from those plants here. Um, but I'm always like, you know, make sure you get a certification in something. <laughs> make sure you get a mastery of something and something. It don't got to be a degree, but something because you can't trust capitalism to look out for you. Uh-huh. And I think that that yeah. Detroit learned that lesson the hard way. Um, that, that, that you could have everything that America said you were supposed to have as the American dream and the, the wool can be pulled, you know, the, what is it, the rug can be pulled out from under you. You know, just like that. And it doesn't matter that you have a nice house when the house is then devalued to <laughs> pennies on the dollar. You know, it uh-huh. doesn't matter that you have um, as well as you don't have savings to be able to deal with two or three years of hard times, you know. So I, I think it was a lesson. But, I mean, but to your earlier question about Detroit, I love these people. I love the comeback story. I wanted to be part of the comeback story. My success in Cleveland had taught me I work better as a big fish in a little pond than, mm-hmm. you know, my skill set in D.C. isn't unique. My skill set in Detroit is. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, and, and I'm able to, my, you know, if, you, if you're interested in having an impact, impact, going where people aren't interested in going is the best way to see the results of your work much faster, mm-hmm. much yeah. more impactful. Um, you know, and that's not just Detroit. Like, any of the places where everybody's like, oh, why you go there? Well, you go there, and you're somebody who has something to bring to the table, you know, in skills or experience or education. You're, what you bring to that is magnified tenfold versus what it would be where you stay, where everybody can do what you do. Now, you started Safe Rock initially in Cleveland, but, I mean, it's mm-hmm. like, has it found home and, and developed to being what you envisioned here in Detroit? So it's interesting. So, faith, so my career is one um, after NIAC, after National Youth Advocacy Coalition. I left there in 2002. My career since then has been one of, going to work for somebody for a couple of years because I'm going to learn something new that I don't know. I'm going to get an experience I don't have. I'm going to learn from people I don't have access to otherwise. Um, And then go back to work for myself. (laughs) Uh Like I can't, I I don't have it in me to like stay working for somebody else for the long haul. I I like being my own boss. Um, So you know, Faith Walk, what used to be LMG Consulting and then eventually morphed into Faith Walk, um, has been off and on since, you know, I would say even 2000 um, when I got my first contract. And, and in the years since, you know, as I get older, I'm even less inclined to work for you. You know, I've been an executive director now of an uh, organization, uh, Washington Area Lawyers for the Arts. I did that for five years. Um, I've been a deputy director of an equality organization, um, Equality Michigan. I did that for a year um, to get the political chops, you know, policy chops under my belt. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I always go back to working for myself. Uh, and so as a result, you know, Faith Walk has been a business of convenience more than, like, I'm trying to build an institution that I can hand off to somebody when I'm done, you know, for better or for worse. Um, it's been that you know when i moved here my original vision 
was to start a nonprofit organization focused on teaching people creative writing and developing um, writing skills and writing products because that's my that's my undergraduate credential, right? Like, and I didn't want to work for public schools because they don't pay. <laughs> and I didn't want to work for, you know, and I and I didn't have an MFA, um, so I couldn't go work for universities. Um, even after I got my MS, it was kind of like, you know, I had conversations with my friends who have MFAs, and they were all discontented. They were all complaining. They loved them like their job. They loved like the academic. They liked their job. They liked teaching. They hated uh, the politics of the academy. And I was mm-hmm. like, uh, I just want to I just do what I always do. I just create something from scratch. I'll do it myself. You know, that was kind of my attitude. And so when I moved to Detroit, that was the plan. I was working with University of Michigan's Prison Creative Arts Project. I was training um, returning citizens who had been incarcerated in creative writing as a method of healing, as therapy, but also as a potential route for um, self-employment. Um, and... Uh, you know, urban rights never took off the way that I thought it would, and I still do it from time to time because I love. I, I, I never want to lose that skill set. I never want to lose the ability to teach people creative writing. So I, you know, offer a free twelve week workshop or a low cost twelve week workshop, usually once a year, to keep my skill set sharp. Um, but I ended up seeing a different need. So, you know, as I got older and was no longer a muscle boy and was now a fat middle-aged man, <laughs> I realized, uh, you know, I realized that, there, you know, there was a group of us guys who were kind of pushed out of the clubs prematurely. You know, when I was going to the clubs in the 90s, you had a wide age range of diversity in body types and ages and just community like everybody was there and for a while even women and trans people were there too because we were all each other had so you learn tolerance you learn to appreciate each other you know eventually got the affirmation of each other because you all had to you know party and play in the same spaces and uh that's known the true like there's probably about a third of the clubs that were available to us um certainly black owned spaces even less and they were dominated by kids. And if you're in your late 30s to early 50s, being in a space with a bunch of kids isn't fun. Um, and so it was kind of like, but you also weren't ready to be put out to pasture. You were <laughs> like, you still wanted a cocktail every now and again. You wanted to socialize with your brother. Um, and so, um, and then I also started seeing a size discrimination, you know, I had enjoyed not being invisible um, for most of my gay life and then suddenly was becoming invisible. And I was aware that some of that was around age, but some of that was around the fact that I had gotten big. And um, there have been people who had never known what it meant to be visible, right? They had never experienced what it was like to have people acknowledge and see them as beautiful, Um, And that bothered me. You know, it bothered me that those things were happening. And so um, I invited some, uh, you know, because I was fairly still fairly new to Detroit. I only been here two years. I invited one of the brothers I know who was more popular to invite his friends over to my house for a barbecue. He was a a large man of size, um, very tall, like almost seven feet tall man of size. And um, 
And he invited, you know, his friends, and we had like 12 people over for a barbecue at my house, Memorial Day weekend three years ago this year. And um, those brothers had such a ball, and they were like, and it was, it was kind of what it was like back in the day when you would go to somebody's house that you barely knew, and they would throw on some movie full of camp and drama, and y'all tackle and cut it up about some Betty Davis something or <laughs> Patty LaBelle something, <laughs> and people ate and, you know, spent, spent time with each other and hung out with each other, and that was kind of what it was, right? Like, and, and that kind of disappeared because of the app, right? Like, that kind of just coming together without sex in mind, without drugs in mind, just to be and enjoy each other's company had started to erode. And, um, you know, a lot of the brothers were in their 30s. They said they had never experienced anything like it, and they wanted more of it. So I was like, I felt bad that they had never experienced anything like it because that would have been, like, my whole upbringing in the gay community. Um, and so I was like, sure, we can do it once a month. I said, but I can't afford to be buying barbecue for all y'all big bodies. You know what I mean? You know, we have, we have to figure something else out about this food. Um, and so we made it a potluck. And, you know, 12 went to 25, went to 30, went to 40, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and people were just, like, grateful for the space, and then they wanted to be more formal. And, you know, I knew how to do that. I had worked with a lot of young nonprofits, and so we put a name on it and a mission statement, and we had a board. And before I knew it, Black Bear Brotherhood was founded, and I was joked that I'm, I became an accidental bear advocate because, Anybody who knew me in my muscle kid days would tell you I was probably the last person to ever be a man. <laughs> uh-huh. But, you know, life is funny that way. And, um, and Black Bear Brotherhood is now in four cities, chapters in four uh-huh. cities. And, um, and we have a website, blackbearbrotherhood.life. And we host community mobilization events every quarter. We have a potluck every month. We have a summer fun and fitness series that we do every summer. And uh, we have sponsorship through the Counter-Narrative Project, who's been instrumental in our growth and development as a grassroots organization. Um, It's now a national grassroots organization. And, uh, you know, and we've been making people feel good about themselves and making sure that people aren't isolated or depressed and lonely, like they have brothers that they call their own and have a space in the gay community again, which some of them had never felt they had. And so, mm-hmm. just like I had for kids, you know, I'm now an elder. <laughs> I'm not elder for big boys, uh, you know. And our age range goes up to 60, but, you know, it's like five people over 45, and I'm one of the five, and everybody else is, you know, in their 30s and 20s and um, just hitting 40. You know, but uh, but it's a space for us, and and it's been it's been a wonderful journey. So I ended up founding a nonprofit in <laughs> in Michigan anyway. Uh, that's the one I had expected to, and um, we're fiscally sponsored by LGBT Detroit, so we're connected to the mainstream Black LGBTQ movement here, and um, and they've been incredible to us too. Curtis Lipscomb and them have been wonderful to us. Well, we're going to take our second break, and then we're going to, I want to circle back to where it all began, your heart in the arts. So we'll be right there. We'll be right there. Sure.
Connections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. And we're back here on collections by Michelle Brown. I'm trying to get an echo. Um, and we're talking with L. Michael Gibson. And one of the things, you know, how there's always like these six degrees of separation, mm-hmm. Black Alphabet Film Festival. Okay. I know Langston. <laughs> I know Adam McNair. You know, I have had both of them on this show to talk about the Black Alphabet Film Festival and, of course, you are engaged with that. Um, you talk about how, you know, you've always kept your hand, and, you know, even though you've gone off and you've done politics, you've done all of these other things, but you've always remained a part of creative arts, you know, that, that part of doing it from this film festival, you write, you do all of that. You know, and I've had people say, like, well, how can you do this and do that? And do you ever have people go, like, how can you be – political, how can you form these grassroots, but here you're involved with writing and doing film festivals. How do you, and how important is it to you to have that balance of both? Uh, Great question, and I don't know how I do. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. it's only when uh, someone asks you to write a bio or you have to update your resume or something like that, you're like... Your thing, read like you are over the place. And somebody, I'm sure somebody was like, "Child, pick a name." But um, you know, it was. I started in theater. Uh, I come from a singing, creative, musical family on both my sides, both my mother and my father's side. I am the grandson of Booker Little, who was a jazz musician um, who died at 23 and appeared in 33 albums, including. John Coltrane's Africa album as a side man, and he has several with Eric Dolphy um, as a, a co-partner album, and then he has four as a band leader. Um, and, you know, his sister was the first black woman to sing Carmen in Italy. They both went to conservatory as teenagers. You know, so my dad's side, I come from Metro, and my mom's side, storytellers, you know, regular griots, people who love to laugh, my grandfather on that side played blues guitar for fun. You know, so I come from that. And um, I, for a long time, I thought I was going to be an uh, artist full time. And, um, you know, I would, uh, my path originally was going to be theater. My dad had wanted me to be a graphic artist because I drew all the time um, as a kid. But I could never master a point of perspective. So I abandoned drawing of the graphic and that, that form of the arts. Um, did theater, <clears throat> was getting cast a lot actually in college and in high school and uh, was a musical, if you'd asked me at like 19 or 20, I was like a musical theater major. But when I met my mentors, you know, for better, for worse, you know, they would show up to my shows and they would be supportive, 
but you could always tell that they kind of wanted me to do something more serious. And even after I won, you know, serious in quotation marks, um, and even after I won um, state, I won gold and silver medal in state and forensic um, performing play excerpts. Uh, you know, my mom was like, when I brought home the medals, she was like, oh, that's cute, but what are you going to do for real to, like, eat? <laughs> you know, um, and so that, that support wasn't really there. But, you know, when I started doing the community stuff and the political stuff, uh, you know, it did suddenly everybody kind of breathe a little easier. So I think that that certainly played a role. Um, and then ultimately, you know, I was still on the track to do theater um, and, and, and until I, and I sung for a year with a jazz quartet with the, my lover at the time, James Jones IV, who was uh, the R&B and jazz critic for USA Today. Um, and so he passed at uh, 33 from a heart attack. Um, and I did that work. I mean, I sung with his quartet, and we went to New York, and I would meet these different people. And um, one of the times we went to a place that Broadway performers would go after the shows to perform at, like, a cabaret. And, uh, you know, and I met several people there who were on cast albums that I had, at the time, used to, like, collect cast albums and study them like people study the Bible. And I was like, oh, my God, you're in so-and-so, and you're in so-and-so. And I was like, what are you doing now? Because, you know, the way that only, like, a kid, 18, 19, can do, um, or 19, 20, could do. And, um, and they were like, oh, I'm unemployed, you know, and waiting for my next gig. I'm auditioning. And, like, that kept being the answer. And I was like, oh, but these people all sing and dance and act way better than I do. <laughs> And like and they and, and they're and they're and they're they're struggling right to make it, and I realized because I had grown up poor that I didn't have an appetite for poverty, and mm. I was like, yeah, I don't. There's a, a level of sacrifice one has to be willing to do to be in that world with both feet, and it wasn't one I was willing to do. I didn't trust. I didn't trust it enough. Um, and so that when I got back, I changed my major, <laughs> and, you know, for a while I was a sociology major. Um, and, uh, you know, and I was just like, yeah, and got really serious about the other work. Um, fast forward, I got invited to, um, I know I'd always been like writing little articles and stuff, but I always wanted to write. Writing was the easy thing for me to kind of say, doing because I could do it on the side, right? Everything else required collaboration and other people and somebody to co-sign you. Writing don't require anybody to co-sign you. You just write, <laughs> right? Like, you just do it. And, um, and so I was always publishing little articles and here and there. And I, was, I worked on a short story collection. I got a book deal from a small press in Florida. The uh, month before the book was supposed to be released, the, the small press folded. I was 25 and devastated by that. Um, but I was—I never stopped writing. I never stopped working on that particular skill set. Um, and when I changed my major again, it was to work on writing because it was kind of like everything in life. At that point, I realized everything in life is story. Um, and then I, I, I convey that to my students, like politics is storytelling. You know, who tells the best story to get people elected? You know, com com commercialism is who's telling the best story to sell their product or service. Um, 
everything in life. It's, it's how we communicate with each other. We, when we tell each other about our day, we tell each other a story. And so how to do that well, how to write that um, with intention and craft became incredibly important to me. So, you know, went back to school, got my degree in that, um, and then thought I was going to teach creative writing. I mean, because I'm was i a great teacher. I'm, I'm passionate about teaching. I'm actually teaching probably more on my first love even than writing. Um, that, you know, I learned that over time. I love teaching people. Um, but, you know, I still, you know, at that point I was making really good money in government. <laughs> it was like, it was like uh, you know, and along the way I had been invited to become a, a music reviewer for um, initially urban, urban um, dialect, a regional magazine out of Ohio, um, and got to meet a lot of independent music artists. And my rise in music criticism coincided with the rise of the indie music scene. And so I had like all this deep knowledge of music because of my own training. And, you know, growing up, my first step, my second stepfather is a DJ. So I grew up in a house with 3,000 vinyl records, Florida selling albums in the house. And so, you know, I had this deep music knowledge and was able to exercise it. And I loved it because I was always trying to introduce somebody to some artist anyway. I was always talking about some music. I was making people mixtapes saying, you got to listen to these people. Um, and before I knew it, I became very respected as, you know, like a cultural critic and music critic in that world. And I had dabbled in other things. I'd written theater criticism and movie criticism for Port of Harlem. Um, and and be, eventually got invited to the Washington Post to be their arts guy for D.C. But at that point, journalism had changed so much that the kind of money that they were offering me to do that was the kind of money I could have lived off of at 25, but certainly couldn't have by 35. <laughs> um, and so I was like, yeah, I can't. I'm going to have to turn that down. Um, but, I, you know, I ended up being Soul Tracks uh, journalist, uh, editor, excuse me, music editor for a decade. I did it for exactly 11 years um, and got to know all of the artists in that scene in the, in the, in the music world. Um and got to champion and be an advocate in that space too, right? Like I got to like, hey, you need to hear this, you know, these artists that are keeping the traditions of soul and R&B and jazz alive. And no, you're not going to hear them on the radio. And they're global. There's music from New Zealand. There's music from Australia. There's music from Germany. Like mm -hmm. there's music from South Africa. And it's all incredible. And I was super excited to be an ambassador people for that that music um and it allowed me to stay in creative spaces and allowed me to stay in creative worlds um and my voice got valued you know labels would hire me to do liner notes for reissues um artists would hire me to do their bios so i would I mean, we would talk about the story that they would want to tell what was the story of this album what was the story of their career that they wanted to tell and you know i would get them to think about you know their lives and story as well, kind of using my training. And even when I worked with the kids, you know, we did a short film that I was part of developing from start to finish. The musical I helped co-write was actually in, wrote half the songs. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. so I always got to keep, you know, even with, with uh, our current, you know, Black Bear Brotherhood, our biggest last event in February was a multimedia art exhibition. Um, where I got to 
give like three different artists who had never been exhibited before their first art exhibit, you know, to the public. Um, so it's been part of me, you know, and now it's kind of all bleeded, blurred with my activism and advocacy, you know, even when I'm dealing with the arts, I'm an advocate, <laughs> you know. Uh, and so um, I think the only thing, and, and now I'm in, I've got to say, so I have been working for six years, almost seven, on two projects. One was uh, a film on the indie soul music movement called Undeniable, uh, directed by John Jointer. And we shelved it because we got an opportunity to work on um, a series that will come out this year through PBS in Chicago, WTTW, um, called Indie Soul Journeys, where we'll tell the how I got over testimonials of six indie soul artists who have personal stories of triumph over adversity mm-hmm. that we'll get to share. And I'm the head writer and co-producer on that project. So, because, um, you know, at a certain point, you know, it's probably been two years now that I left my formal role as um, music editor at SoulTracks.com. I'm now their editor at large. I might, you know, so I've gone from writing like 10 reviews, eight reviews a month to maybe one every few months. <laughs> uh, but, you know, kind of like my heroes, Nelson George, Teray, you know, other people who I've watched, uh, Scott Post and Bryant, who've made that transition from music criticism and music journalism and creative arts criticism to um, putting out their own products, right? And so that's kind of the template I've been following, like how can I put out, you know, stories that I care about, that I'm passionate about, um, and not just be a critic of what's coming out. And some of that was also driven by just um, being older and my ear not being attuned to what was popular. You know, I hate trap music. I hate trap soul. <laughs> like that's not, you know, that, and even in the indie soul game, that those sounds started to bleed in because people felt like they had to do it in order to sell. Um, and so it just became harder to find music that you liked and championed. And, and you know, at a certain point, you just got to be like, you know, kind of like working with kids, I've aged out. <laughs> like, it's, it's, a, it's a young person's game. It's time for somebody young who likes what's current to, uh, to ab- advocate and champion for those young artists who are coming up whose aesthetic is their aesthetic, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but as you talk about that, you know, and I know what you said that you, you know, in some ways you've aged out, but don't you still apply that eye? I mean, can you ever not apply that critical eye to pop culture and things that you see that are going on? Do you ever sort of look at it and say, like, well, you know, I don't want to listen to that all day, but I can see what this person is doing or and and you know, and I guess part of it it sort of ties into one of the things that you and I have talked about before, like it, uh, you often do like your gazette of what's on t v or like there's a there needs to be a way that we look at something and and even if it's not what you want to watch forever, recognize how it impacts how society, how your peers, how people are thinking. Yeah, I mean, I, I think especially if you ever go to school for the arts, you, can, you can't ever not deconstruct. You know too much. You know how the sausage is made. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you, you know, so with music, you know, I've taken theory, I've sung, you know, I've done jazz. 
you know, so like you can't ever look, listen to a composition and not pay attention to what's, you know, what the musicians are doing, what's the tension that's happening in the composition, you know, all kinds of things that nobody else is paying attention to except other musicians. Um, same thing with theater. Like when I go to the, see a play or a musical, um, and if I have a goal in life that I have yet to fulfill is that I want to direct theater at some point. That's a, a wish list thing that I want to do. Because when theater is bad, I'm literally in my seat redirecting like how this could be, how this could be better. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm in my seat recasting roles. I'm in my seat changing, blocking, um, you know, like that's what I'm doing in my head. Um, that's how I know when it's bad. If I'm if I'm no longer transported into the world that they're trying to sell me, and I'm now fixing the world, uh, I, was, I was like, yeah. Um, so no, you can't ever turn it off, which is annoying to people who date me who are not that way. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, they're like, can't you just enjoy it? Just watch it. Why you gotta deconstruct everything? Um, so that that's a, a pitfall of dating me. Um, but I think that, I mean, to your point, I started microblogging a decade ago um, through Facebook. And initially, uh, you know, <laughs> everything in my life, is, I wish I could say that I, it was also planned and I was this brilliant person. You know, like everything has been kind of happenstance and then taking advantage of the opportunity once I realized an opportunity is there. So I started microblogging because when I was working for mainstream media, for places like Creative Loafing Atlanta, I was there like R&B and jazz critic for five years. Um, you know, they paid attention, Washington Post, when they interviewed me, they paid attention to what your clout score was. And um, clout, it does kind of essentially um, algorithm metric assessment of your social influence. Like, so how much can you say or prove that people are actually paying attention to you and listening to you? And, um, and it was it was different. It was the first time that guy got introduced. Before, if you were a journalist, you know, you put out stuff, you hope people read it, you kind of didn't know unless they told you that they read it. Um, you really didn't have any way of tracking or assessing your impact in the work that you did. Um, you knew if an artist pushed you out or something like that, that they didn't like it. <laughs> but, but, but other than that, you didn't really know. And um, And so I you know, reluctantly got involved in, in Facebook. I had always, I did the MySpace thing when MySpace was a thing um, and transitioned to Facebook. And I'd always understood, uh, you know, once I'd been trained in it, um, it's kind of another thing I don't know how to turn off, how to create community for people who don't have community. And so fairly early on, I named my Facebook page Gibson Gazette and people who followed me, Gibson Gazetters. And it was a way of people being a part of something. Um, and, you know, if I wanted people to read a hard news item or care about an issue that I cared about, you know, I had to surround that, that with three or four things that they cared about. You know, what, what was in pop culture that they cared about? What, what is it? What hot news item are they talking about? What, what's the water cooler discussion? And then in there, I would post something in there about something I wanted them to care about. And that was my way of still kind of influencing and having an impact in the world while building my cloud score. And before I knew it, 
you know, I watched a lot of TV. I watched a ridiculous amount of television. So, and I was, I, you know, we'll talk about the TV shows I was watching. And so, I, you know, at that point, live threads just slowly started kind of happening on Twitter. Entertainment Weekly has started doing recaps and live threads of things. And so I started doing live threads of the TV shows I was watching every day. And people came and watched TV with me. <laughs> Which is like the most like, incredible thing in the world. Like I'm, I'm just literally talking about what I'm watching as I'm watching it, commenting, throwing shade, reading, making laughing, <laughs> and people started joining in. And like I remember that when we had one of the Oscars and we had over a thousand comments, and I was just like, this is crazy. <laughs> like, wow. You know, um, you know, people had never met me, and um, and I didn't. I don't know that I always took it seriously. It was something to do, and it was fun, and it was a release. And it also allowed me to, like, post, again, post kind of hard news articles that I wanted people to pay attention to. Um, and also share my writings, the things that I got published, and, you know, people get to read my stuff. But um, what also began to happen, though, was people started inboxing me and telling me, thank you, you know, I'm suffering from cancer, and you know, yours is the bright spot of my day. I go to your page just so I can get a good laugh, you know, or people like, you know, I'm isolated out here, you know, without people who think like me, who like me, and, you know, because of your page, I feel like I have a community. And and it started, you know, being something else, you know, and, and so I, I leaned in to that. I leaned into the community aspect of it and the family aspect of it because, you know, and over the years, we've lost people who've died, um, mm-hmm. a few people from cancer and a few people from other things. You know, the downside is that um, of, of becoming popular in that way is that you do get to know a lot of people, um, and you also get to know a lot of people who transition, and that's probably been the hardest part of that for me. Um, you know, one year I knew, like, 20 people who died. I was just like, this is entirely too many people to know who died in one year. Um, and some of that was just because I've lived in six cities, right? Like, um, and, you know, Gibson Gazette is kind of taking on life of its own. And I, I, if I don't post, people ask questions where you are, what's going on, what's, what's happening with you, are you dead? <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, okay, <laughs> if I don't post a, a live thread of a TV show, even if I'm not watching that TV show that night, I better post a thread because people are going to be like, where he at? Why, why the thread ain't up? So we can watch TV together. You know, people have come to rely on that as part of mm-hmm. their routine. And, you know, you realize you can't take for granted people's attention and the fact that you're a part of their lives. Um, people you've never met you know, are part of your lives. And, um, well, you know, while we're, while we're all sitting at home now, vegging, you know, going between the TV and the refrigerator, and particularly, though, because many of us, you know, we've got kids sitting there, what do you think that is something that's out there that you would say particularly to a black family, to a black family, to a young brother, you know, if you haven't watched this, you really should? Hmm. See, most of my interests lean towards things that probably aren't family friendly. <laughs> you know, maybe uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Little fires everywhere. I think people could probably watch that with their family. October Faction. People could probably watch that with their family. Um, the one, the first show I said is on Hulu. The other is like on Netflix. Um, the 
I mean, I enjoyed Dear White People, that series on Netflix. Um, Queen Sano, probably oh, to be that. watched. Yeah, mm-hmm. by Black, by Black Femme. You know, there's a couple of sex scenes in there. Um, but, yeah, most of my, I lean towards darker material. Um, I Like, I love film noir. I like crime stories. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a big British mystery detective fan, you know, um, mm-hmm. So I see a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, but, yeah, like, I, I, I think there's – I think we're definitely in a renaissance of really fantastic material. Um, chewing gum would be fun. <laughs> chewing gum was with mm. black Michaela Cole. Um, her debut kind of uh, – well, and it really wasn't her debut, but it's her debut kind of in public consciousness. Um, black Earth Rising was another good one with Michaela Cole, but that's her playing a serious role. Um, it's a black British show um, talking about Africa. Um, yeah, so there's, you know, there's so much good content now. Um, you know, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm also incredibly busy with clients <laughs> and work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the pandemic for other people has been a time where they've had less to do. I've actually had more to do because, there's a lot of COVID-19 emergency resources out right now, so my clients are blowing up my phone. We need to get this grant out. Oh, there's a new grant. We need to go after it. You know, so that's happening a lot for me. Um, and then, you know, right now, because of the economic insecurity, you know, you certainly don't feel like you can turn anything down. So we don't want to be turning down work in a time where, you know, 22 million-plus people are now unemployed. Um, so you know, I've been trying to balance my – uh, couch potato loafing <laughs> activities with trying to make sure I get these deadlines met. Um, and and I, I think probably the hardest part about right now is uh, the Black Bear Brotherhood stuff, you know, is all in person. That was that's kind mm-hmm. of the specialness of it. You know, we've done an online happy hour cocktail thing and we've done a sponsor of Bear's Care. So if one of the brothers gets sick and can't get meds and food, we can um, have it delivered to their house. Um, mm. So we've done that as kind of our response, but it's hard not to be in each other's company um, and be, you know, in-person support for folks. But, yeah, that's kind of what's going on with me. Mm. Yeah. Well, oh, and for people who are – oh, I'm sorry, real quick. For people no, who no, are interested in my music taste, um, I did a, po- a music podcast uh, for, like, four and a half, five years. It was therapy when my mom passed um, for me. And it was also a way to kind of champion music that I love. Uh, and those podcasts are all still up. <laughs> so it's, um, it's probably about 20 of them in like three hours each. So if you're looking for some good music, indie soul music over the last 20 years that you might have missed out on, feel free. Like that was what the focus of the podcast series was on was um, indie soul and music that wasn't being played on the radio a lot. A few hits, but for the most part, a lot of underground stuff. Um, people can check it out. It's LMG Soul Eclectics um, or Soul Eclectics Mix. Um, and both are like on iTunes, and you can find it on Podomatic as well. So that also gives people in a sense of kind of my musical aesthetic and the kind of music and musicians I championed. Well, Michael, we want to thank you for taking some time to be with us. Um, this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. This has been um, good. I hope I haven't talked your ear off. <laughs> no, I mean, I 
find your journey absolutely beautiful. Like, I'm just so amazed and, like, you know, yeah, your journey and, like, where you have your hands from, you know, social justice work to youth advocacy to uh, music criticism and theater. I'm just, like, so blown away by the work that you do. And thank you so much. Oh, thank you all for having me. And, you know, congratulations on your series. And, you know, the fact that it keeps getting better and better and growing its audience this amazing vision that you have um, for highlighting the people in our community that people don't highlight. So, you know, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for both for the work that you do. We want to thank our guest, the founder of the Black Bear Brotherhood and community activist, L. Michael Gibson. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on Google Play Music, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.